Our scripture reading at this time comes from the book of Mark, and it will begin in chapter 8 of Mark and continue into chapter 9. The scripture reading will begin at Mark chapter 8, verse 27, and then continue through into chapter 9, verse 13. Also keep in mind the text for the sermon will be verses 2 through 10 of chapter 9, which I will not read again because of the length. Begin the scripture reading at Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But some say Elias, and others one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answereth and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, and Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel's, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever, therefore, shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed, when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And now the words of our text. And after six days Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John and leadeth them up into an high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his raiment, his clothing, became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. 
And there appeared unto them Elias with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. For he wist or knew not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. And suddenly, when they had looked round about, they saw no man any more, save Jesus only with themselves. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. And they asked him, saying, Why say the scribes that Elias must first come? And he answered and told them, Elias verily cometh first, and restoreth all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be set at naught. But I say unto you that Elias is indeed come, and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed, as it is written of him. Thus far we read in God's word. May he bless us in the reading of Scripture. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a pivotal event in the ministry of Jesus that appears in Mark chapter 8. And that pivotal event occurs, interestingly, in verses 27 through 29, when Jesus asks the disciples that question concerning his identity. Up to that point in the ministry of Jesus, the question of his identity And his redemptive work was not made public. That is, it was not conclusively declared, or as verse 30 teaches, or rather verse 32 teaches, he spake that saying openly. Prior to that, Jesus did not speak, as it were, openly, or make it so clear, this is who I am and this is what my work is. He left often the question of his his identity to be answered by men. Now it comes to this point where Jesus pushes the issue, especially with his disciples, and asks them the question concerning his identity. Whom do men say that I am? And whom do ye say that I am? Jesus is teaching that now it is the point in my ministry where all must answer that question and give account for their answer to that question. Some of the public, as the disciples said, answered that wrongly because of their unbelief. Because of their unbelief, they thought, well, Jesus is John the Baptist risen from the dead like wicked Herod had thought. Or no, that's Jeremiah. Or that's another one of the prophets. Or maybe they had a different answer. 
Peter and his, disciples, his fellow disciples answer that question emphatically. Christ draws out of them clearly and openly his identity. Thou art the Christ. Thou art the son of David. Thou art the son of the living God. According to the measure of faith worked in Peter and the disciples by the Lord, they answer that question correctly. He is the promised Messiah. Jesus then, having established openly now his identity, not just before his 12 disciples, but also that larger group of disciples and before the multitude, then Jesus openly also reveals Yes, I am the Christ, and now I must do the work of the Christ. Verse 31, he goes on to teach his disciples, make it very clear, this is what I must do. As the scriptures have taught, I must be rejected. I must be put to death. I must rise again the third day. And it's from that pivotal event in the ministry of Jesus there now moves forward the events that follow in chapter 8 and then our text as well. There's a connection between our text and that event there in verses 27 through 29. One of those events that leads up to the text is Jesus taught his disciples what faithful and true discipleship is. Jesus taught that a disciple must deny himself, not just deny things to himself, such as deny himself food. Jesus doesn't mean that. He means deny ourselves, our own will. Take up that cross of suffering for his sake and follow him wheresoever he leads us in life, according to his word. And those who do not deny themselves by their unbelief. And those who are ashamed of the Lord, the Lord warns of them, I will be ashamed before the Son of, before the Father when I come in my glory. But those who by faith do follow him faithfully, of them the Lord will not be ashamed before the Father when he comes in his glory with the holy angels. And now in connection with our text is the, we wonder, well, what is that glory of which Jesus is speaking about there in connection with true discipleship? Did Jesus know what that glory was? And how could he be sure that he would receive that glory? How could he be sure that I am going to come on the clouds of glory with my holy angels when he is there as the man Jesus Christ under the cloak of suffering? How could he be so sure? And then in preparation for our text, there is, in verse 1 of chapter 9, the statement by Jesus that there be some standing here who shall not taste of, taste of death until they have seen the kingdom of God come in power. Well, what kind of kingdom is that? And when will that kingdom come in great power? Is it going to come, as the disciples thought, legions of soldiers and we will conquer Jerusalem and then we will set up the, 
throne of David in Jerusalem and have great power and glory, even conquer the Romans too? What is that kingdom? What is its power? What is its glory? The text now points us to the answers to those questions where we, by faith, behold Jesus transfigured before his disciples on the top of a hill in Galilee. Call your attention to the event of the text, the transfiguration of Jesus. Notice the glorious event, the wise reasons for that transfiguration, and thirdly, the resulting significance that the Lord teaches us when he speaks from heaven at the occasion of the transfiguration of his son, Jesus Christ. After the events of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus goes with three of his disciples into a place of seclusion. He doesn't take all 12 disciples. Not all 12 are chosen to accompany him, but he selected only three. The main three, which happened before, and which would happen again in the Garden of Gethsemane, he chooses Peter, James, and John. And they go with Jesus to the top of a mountain or a tall hill in Galilee to do what? To go to the Father in prayer. That may sound strange to us. Jesus prayed to the Father? Yes. This reveals that Jesus has a human nature, just like you and I have a human nature. The only difference, of course, is that Jesus, as we know and believe, has a human nature and had a human nature in this life with no sin, no unrighteousness. But even though he had a sinless human nature, he still needed prayer. He needed prayer with the Father in heaven with regard to especially what he had revealed to his disciples in verses 31, and concerning which he rebukes Peter in verse 32 and 33, the work of his being, being rejected by the chief priests and the elders and the scribes of dying and then rising again from the dead. And so Jesus, as the man Jesus Christ, had a specific need regarding the work which the Father had sent him to do. And he carries that burden, as we must in our lives carry our burdens, to the Father in prayer and in fellowship with him, Jesus, we understand, would have poured out his soul before the Father regarding the work which the Father had sent him to do. And while Jesus was on the mountain in prayer, well, think of that, beloved, if Jesus needed to pray concerning the burden which he received and had to carry, how much more do we not need to pray and pour out our souls and cast our burdens before the Father in prayer? And while Jesus was doing that, our Father answered him. And the Father answered him in an amazing way. Later in his ministry, the Father would answer him in a way Jesus did not expect. The Lord sent an angel from heaven 
and ministered to him in the Garden of Gethsemane when he poured out his soul before the Father regarding the cup which he must drink. So also here, the, the Father in heaven sends to Jesus an answer to his prayer before the Father concerning the work which the Father had sent him to do. A very special answer, something perhaps which he himself, according to his human nature, did not expect. Suddenly, in the presence of his disciples, in prayer with the Father, Jesus was transfigured before them. What does that mean? Well, the Bible says his clothing began to shine brightly. It was, the Bible says, exceeding white as snow. You know what snow is? Very bright, very white when it falls from the sky by God's direction. God has made it that way, amazingly. And that is the white which began to shine from the face of Christ. Then the text goes on to say that even his, besides his clothing, his face began to shine. White as snow and bright as the sun. Think of that, children. How, how long can you look into the sun? Well, not very long before your eyes begin to hurt and we have to cover our eyes because that sun is so bright. That's the glory into which Jesus was changed in the presence of his disciples. His whiteness was so white, it was whiter than the white of the cloth that we use on the communion table. Whiter than any textile expert could possibly make white in this earth. Something of a white which we believe was heavenly. And that's the glory which shined from Christ before his disciples so that they had to cover their eyes. Now Jesus was not changed according to his divine nature. Christ is that glory in his divine nature. His human nature was changed from his earthly presence of his earthly clothing and the look that he had and the dark hair which he had, and then changed into this shining white and glorious brightness. And we might wonder, well, how long did that last? Well, the text teaches us long enough for Moses and Elijah to come and to talk with Jesus. Yes, Moses and Elijah came into the presence of Jesus and before him on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses and Elijah appeared before Jesus in their resurrection bodies. We know that Elijah went into heaven by the whirlwind, accompanied by the chariot and the flaming horses and the angels, into the presence of God. We know he didn't die like Enoch. And so he received his heavenly resurrection body at the moment the Lord received him into heaven. And that's the body which Elijah comes and stands before Jesus and talks to him face to face. But also Moses, too. In the book of Deuteronomy, we read that God buried Moses. And then in the book of Jude, we read 
Michael the archangel had a controversy with the devil over what? The body of Moses in heaven. The devil arguing that that body of Moses shouldn't be there. Michael not speaking, but letting the Lord in his good time to answer the charge, the evil charge and accusation of the devil against really the work of God. Not only burying Moses, but receiving him up into heaven and giving him his resurrection body in heaven. And so Moses, in spite of the accusations of the devil, stands before Jesus and Elijah in their resurrection glory. And they talk with Jesus. What did they talk about? Talked about something very important. Something which Jesus reveals earlier in the passage in verse 31. They talked about his suffering and his death. And his resurrection. And talked with Jesus about that subject from the viewpoint of what they represented. Moses represented the Old Testament types and shadows and the ceremonies connected with the tabernacle and the temple later in history. Talked about that suffering and death of Christ from the viewpoint of what those types and shadows showed Jesus must do in his own flesh, in his own life, with his own blood. And also spoke to Jesus from the viewpoint of the Old Testament types and shadow of the resurrection that he would obtain as well. Elijah, the same topic. He addresses from the viewpoint of being a representative of all of the prophecies that were spoken by the prophets throughout the Old Testament scriptures concerning the death of Christ and his resurrection. And so Elijah would speak to Jesus about the work which he was sent to do from the viewpoint, for example, of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 53, which speaks of the death of Christ for us and the burial of Christ, and would speak also of the resurrection of Christ from the viewpoint of even the prophet Isaiah. And so briefly, Jesus, with Moses and Elijah, talked face to face about what the Old Testament law and prophets showed Jesus must do for his people as our mediator in order to obtain the glory which Jesus saw in Moses and Elijah and which he miraculously himself experienced and tasted for a brief period of time. Amazing. And something which Peter did not understand yet. Upon witnessing what was going on, Peter blurted out a very unwise, as the text says, he didn't know what was going on. He said, Master, it is good for us to be here. That's true. And let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He thought that would be a good idea. Have them stay here on this earth. Which reflects a little bit of the expectation which Peter had for that kingdom. 
He thought the kingdom would come in that power which is earthly and have a glory which is earthly. So his idea of having them come to the earth seemed like a good idea and having these three men stay there in their glorified condition among the disciples and for the coming of the kingdom on this earth. But he didn't understand. Wasn't given the faith yet to understand what this transfiguration meant, what it was teaching him and the other apostles and the church in the future. He would receive that faith later, but not at this time. A special cloud then covered Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. A special cloud which reminds us of the Shekinah cloud in the Old Testament, or the cloud that led the children of Israel in the wilderness. A cloud comes and covers them in the presence of the disciples. We don't know and are not told what Jesus saw, but we do know he saw Moses and Elijah in that heavenly glory, in fellowship with the Father, and then heard that voice from the Father, a very joyful occasion. This is my beloved Son. Hear him. He is righteous and true. Hear his word, the word of my kingdom and my covenant, my dwelling with my people in this Christ, in this glory. Then, as quickly as it had come, the transfiguration disappeared. Three disciples are on the ground covering themselves and covering their eyes, and then they feel this tap on the shoulder, and Jesus telling them to arise up and let's go. The disciples see that the other men are gone, the glory is gone, and Jesus is back to his old condition. Looks normal again, just as he had been before. Except, as the other passages that speak of the same event, and a little later say, There's one change they noticed in the face of Christ, or in his eyes, that determination to go to Jerusalem, to go forward, not reluctantly, but with purpose for the work which the Father had sent him to do. And even though Jesus understood and was going forward with purpose in the knowledge of what that transfiguration meant and why it was given to him, he tells his disciples, don't say anything about what you have seen till the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Your children know what a secret is, right? And if you have a friend that says, I'm going to tell you a secret, then we're obligated to not say anything. That's what Jesus said to his disciples. I'm going to require you to keep what you saw a secret. And you may say anything about what you saw until after I have risen from the dead. In fact, they would not say anything openly until after Pentecost. Then they would speak, and then they would speak with knowledge and understanding. But until then... They would not only keep it a secret, 
They really didn't understand what they had seen. They had lots of questions. What did the transfiguration mean? Why did God send it? What is its connection between connection to the resurrection from the dead? Why may we not speak about this until after the resurrection? Well, the Bible answers some of those questions about the reasons for the transfiguration. And there are five reasons why Jesus was given the transfiguration. Two reasons which apply to himself, three reasons which are for the benefit of the church and you and me. Concerning Jesus, God gave him the transfiguration for number one as a confirmation of his faithfulness to the Father. When we hear the Father say from that cloud, this is my beloved Son, well, that reminds us of what the Father had said before. In fact, the same thing. When John the Baptist baptized Jesus in the Jordan River and the dove descended down upon the head of Jesus, there was that voice which came from heaven, which John heard which said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now we hear a deliberate repetition of that same word of the Father from heaven. Why did the Father do that? The Father did that to confirm for Christ that since his baptism at the Jordan River, And his official ordination into his public ministry in the earth, Christ had been entirely devoted, never turning to the right, never to the left, from all that the Father had sent him to do. Jesus did his preaching when he did his miracles. He didn't do it because of his will. He did everything in submission and loving obedience to the will of his heavenly Father. We even see that in the miracles which he did. Often he would say after the miracle to the one whom he healed, now don't tell anyone. That is, I am not doing this work for my own glory, for my own popularity. I do this work because I love my Father in heaven. That was his goal. That was his unswerving purpose in his work, to fulfill all righteousness unto the Father. When the Father then speaks, he confirms in the mouth of himself and two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, who represented the Old Testament scriptures, that mouth of the Father and his witness confirmed that what the Old Testament scriptures taught, that's exactly what Jesus was fulfilling, without fail without error, without overlooking anything. That motivated Jesus, according to his human nature, to continue in that same path of obedience unto his Father in heaven. And the second reason was that the transfiguration was given as a foretaste of that work which Jesus was sent to do, particularly the goal of his redemptive work. The goal of the work of Christ as our mediator was certainly the cross. 
was certainly that which is the glorious foundation of all of our salvation, all of our redemption. We are reminded, and so is Christ, that the cross itself is not the end point of his ministry. Jesus is taught and encouraged to look beyond the cross, as horrible as it was, and as hellish as the agonies would be, and as bitter as that cup of suffering would be that he must drink, Christ must look beyond that to what is the goal of his work, namely that glory. In his transfiguration, then, Jesus receives a glimpse of that glory which is beyond the cross, which in obedience he would fulfill, and which he would receive on the other side in his resurrection. What was that heavenly glory? From the text we learn it's that shining bright glory and something which our earthly eyes cannot comprehend or see, really. We don't have the ability to understand that glory. But the scriptures do teach us elsewhere from a different perspective something which is helpful to understand what that glory is that the Father gives Jesus a glimpse of which he gives Jesus a glimpse. That's taught in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 where it speaks of Jesus running the race that was given to him and he continues in that race for the goal, verse 2 says, of the joy that was set before him. Now the Holy Spirit could have put there for the heavenly glory that was before him and that would be correct. The Lord has there the joy to emphasize in that glory, it's not that Jesus wins the championship in this race all by himself, but it's a glory in a joy that implies a relationship or fellowship with those in whom he rejoices or before, he re before whom he rejoices. This is the joy, then, of Christ's victory over all of his enemies, fulfilling all the work that the Father had sent him to do, all the work of even being forsaken by the Father in that inexpressible misery and darkness, but then obtaining that glorious life and fellowship with the Father, the saints, and the holy angels in a joy that is everlasting. Transfiguration, beloved, was a foretaste of that joy of heavenly glory, of doing all that the Father had sent him to do to establish a delightful fellowship with him in his covenant, and to do that not just for himself, but also for his people. What is a foretaste? To understand what a foretaste is, think of the example of, let's say, a wise mother. She understands the needs of her son and understands what may have happened to him in the day, and she receives 
her little boy into the house. After he's been playing for most of the day, he's hungry. Before him is the supper. And because of how easily he is distracted at the supper table, and because maybe the vegetable that's being served is not his favorite, she wisely takes the little boy over to the counter, takes his finger, and reaches it forward and and dips it into the frosting of the chocolate cake. And then puts that dip of frosting into his tongue, into his mouth, to taste the joy that will be his in that dessert after the supper. And after he must sit still at the table and diligently eat the food that is set before him, including that vegetable which might not be his favorite, and persevere through all of that until finally he has that of which he had a foretaste, that large piece of chocolate cake, and rejoices in that dessert which is finally his. In a very similar way, but obviously a more glorious way, it is though the Father reaches down and takes Christ and gives to him a small, little taste in the transfiguration of the heavenly joy of glory that will be his after the darkness and the bitterness and the hellish agonies of the cross in obedience to the Father and for his people, for us. And that, beloved, was an encouragement to Christ to press forward down that slope of humiliation to the death of the cross, knowing that beyond the cross, because of his obedience, there would be glory, there would be joy with the Father. It leads us then to the three reasons why the transfiguration is given to Christ, the three reasons that apply to the church. Number one, this transfiguration confirms the identity of Jesus. A little earlier, remember, the disciples said, Thou art the Christ. Now the Father gives that confirming witness in the transfiguration. Yes, this is the Christ. You are correct, disciples. In the presence of Moses and Elijah and the Father, the disciples' confession in Caesarea Philippi is underscored. Yes, this is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And whenever the church proclaims that truth, there is echoed this confirmation of the Father in heaven. Yes, this is the Christ, the only Savior from sin and death. He is the only begotten Son of me, the triune God. He is the Son of Man, the only mediator of my people. Yes, he is the Christ. According to the emphasis of the book of Mark, this is the true prophet. The word which he speaks is always true. The word which he spoke through Moses in the Old Testament and through the prophets in the Old Testament, he is true to that word. He is the fulfillment of that word. Hear him. Number two, This transfiguration also, in addition to confirming our confession of his identity, also confirms his perfect obedience 
to the Father for the sake of you and me. Now, we've mentioned that earlier, that it confirmed the second repetition of what the Father said earlier. It confirmed the righteousness of Christ for Christ, but also for us, too. And that's made clear, especially in the aftermath of the transfiguration. When the glory is taken away, Jesus is back to his normal complexion, and the clothes are not shining anymore, they're normal. We see the commitment of Christ to us. The transfiguration showed that Christ, hypothetically, could have gone directly to heaven like Elijah. Avoided the cross altogether and obtained his glory for himself, taking the shortcut. But beloved, see that though Jesus tasted that heavenly glory, though he tasted joy, amazing joy with his Father in heaven, in the presence of Moses and Elijah, when the glory is taken away and that foretaste of that joy is removed, he doesn't complain, he doesn't murmur, He is content to go to those disciples who don't understand what he's doing and to say, arise, let us go. I'm continuing down the cross, the road to the cross for you, though you don't understand what I'm doing. I will lay lay down my life for you and take it up again for you. I will not forsake you. I will be faithful To everyone whom the Father has given to me, I will lose not even one. That, beloved, is encouraging. That shows the extent of the love of Christ to you and me. And then thirdly, the Lord gives this transfiguration to Jesus for the sake of the church as a clear revelation of his glory after his resurrection and in his ascension so that we may preach that glory of Christ. Preach the full counsel, the full gospel of our salvation. Jesus, in his wisdom, brought with him the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. They didn't need all 12. Three was sufficient to accomplish that qualification which the apostles needed to do their work later in the New Testament. They needed to be eyewitnesses, not only of the suffering and death of Jesus Christ, which they did. They saw him crucified. They saw him betrayed and all of that suffering. They also needed to be eyewitnesses of his glory. So that when they went out and preached the gospel, they could say, we saw him die, we also saw him after his resurrection, and we know, we have an understanding, we saw a glimpse of the glory which he has at the Father's right hand now in in heaven. We haven't seen it in its fullness, but we did see a glimpse of it, we did see a real, true foretaste of that glory, of that joy. That encouraged them not only 
to know that, yes, we're saying the right things, Jesus is in his glory, but it also encouraged them that the work of Christ would surely save his people from their sin into that joy and glory which he had obtained. It assured them that the content of their gospel was true and that the power of the gospel would surely save his people from their sin. He is seated in that glory. Of course, in that glory he will gather unto himself his sheep and lose not one. Now that raises the question, well, what about us today? As God's church today, are we, at a le- are we at a disadvantage now that since we have not stood on the Mount of Transfiguration with the disciples and saw Jesus transfigured, and so we're not eyewitnesses, is the content of what we preach and is the power of what is preached, are we sure, can we be sure that it is true. And according to the Apostle Peter himself in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, the answer is no, we're not at a disadvantage. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, the Apostle Peter writes, For we, in our preaching, in the content of, What we say as apostles in our preaching, we have not followed cunningly devised fables. When we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why not? But were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Then the apostle Peter goes on to say in verse 19, though that is true, nevertheless we, the church today, the church then to which he speaks in 2 Peter chapter 2 and still today, we have also a more sure word of prophecy regarding that same glorious Christ, concerning his same salvation and the power of his salvation. Still today we have something that's more, even more sure than if Peter stood here and told us what he saw. Where do we have that? We have that in the Holy Scriptures of which verses 20 and 21 speak. No prophecy is of, of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. We have in the Scriptures then. This is the more sure word of prophecy, so that Though we were not on the Mount of Transfiguration, yet by faith, when we look into the Holy Scriptures and preach that word, we preach that Christ who is in his glory. And our preaching is true. And we may be sure that the word which we preach does pull down the strongholds of Satan. It does destroy the kingdom of darkness. And it does build up the kingdom of Christ 
not as the apostles thought, in a particular place in Palestine, builds up that kingdom in the hearts of you and me, all of God's people. That's an encouragement to us in our discipleship who must deny ourselves, take up that cross of suffering for the sake of this Christ in his glory and follow him according to his word wherever he leads us in life. And that leads then to the significance that the Father himself commands us to do from that glory, from that excellent glory. The Father said, hear him. Don't listen to any other voice. Don't listen to the voices that say, Walk in sin. Do what you want. Don't deny yourself. You don't need to do that. Live the way you want to do it. Don't listen to your parents. Don't listen to what you've been taught. Just do your own thing. Or the voices that say, listen to the religion that we have, or the false teaching that we have, or the philosophy that we have. This is the way you will have a happy life. And, beloved, to those voices of wickedness, those voices of disorderliness, those, vo- those voices of false teaching, man's philosophy, we're prone to follow that. Often it's attractive to our flesh. We're prone to embrace that which is easy and that doesn't require self-denial and cross-bearing For the sake of Christ in his glory. He's in his glory and we're down here in this life of darkness suffering for him. We're not prone to do that. And then walk in a straight and narrow way. And yet the Lord commands us, hear him. By the word which has the same, had the same power to call that which was not into being in the creation. That same word, Christ speaks out of his glory, hear me. For there is no salvation apart from my voice and my word. I am your only redemption. I am your only hope. I am your only real happiness in life. I'm the only sure foundation to a godly, thankful, happy life of service in my kingdom. You must believe in me who arose from the dead and gained that life, not only of glory, but of joy and fellowship with the Father, all of our saints and even the holy angels. Hear him. The good news, beloved, is that to actually hear Jesus yet today and to embrace his word, we need, as the disciples needed, who didn't understand what was going on here, so also we need the indwelling spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ to be given unto us and to work in us faith. That true believing in which we know that, yes, Jesus is the glory and joy of full salvation and by the Holy Spirit with conviction to say that Christ is my covenant head 
And he is my light and my salvation and my glory and my joy. Believing that, beloved, we must then trust in that word which Jesus speaks out of his glory through his word by the weak means of the preaching of the gospel. Hear him and trust in his word. Though the Lord is in his heavenly glory and in that joy at the Father's right hand, don't think that the Lord is an unmerciful high priest who doesn't care about you. He knows the road of suffering upon which you must travel in this life. But because he is in his glory, beloved, you must know that that road which you travel is not paved in God's curse to bring about your ruin and destruction. That pathway has been paved in the blood of Christ, and its goal is sure for his sake in the very joy which he has established at God's right hand. You must know that all of your pains and persecutions and problems you and I must endure serve that end point. So that after the suffering, there must also be for you and me the joy that God has set before us and set and anchored and established at his right hand. From that position then, beloved, hear all that the Lord speaks to you, all those precious things that are very dear to us. For example, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Christ says that as our true prophet in that glory. And that's very true. It's always true for his saints. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Or all that the Father hath given to me, from eternity, and for whom I died, I shall lose not one, not even you and me. From that glory he speaks of the hope that we have in him, that he is the captain of our salvation upon this ship and its voyage in the storms of this life to that joy and glory in the harbor of heaven. And... He is the anchor, he says, in his glory, I am the anchor of your soul. I have anchored you to this glory, to this joy at the Father's right hand. And from there to here, I will provide for you all that you need in body and soul, even your daily bread, so that you may someday arrive with me in this glory. Beloved, trust in his word. His word is true. His word is powerful. And his word works in us that faith by which we may obtain and receive peace and rest for our weary souls. And then believe, beloved, that as he has obtained his glory for you, then after you have suffered a while, you also will obtain that joy with him in glory. Amen. Let us pray.
O most merciful and heavenly Father, we give thanks to thee that in thine infinite mercy thou hast given to us that revelation of the event of the transfiguration of Jesus, given to him not just for himself and his work as our mediator in this life, but also for the benefit of us as well, who need that encouragement day by day. And continue to give us a foretaste of that glory, of that joy which is awaiting us also in this Lord's day, in our fellowship with thee and in our fellowship with one another in our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our light and our salvation. In his name we pray, amen.